This morning, our Lord willing, we will be finishing chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians. I know we have been in this for a little while now, and uh, hopefully it's not become tiresome for you, uh, but I hope that you have enjoyed every moment that we have spent in here so far, and that the Lord is richly blessing you with His Word So I want to ask a question this morning, and I want you to think about this question. It's a very serious question. Who is, and notice the present tense, not the past tense, who is Jesus of Nazareth? You know, the name Jesus is is widely known and used. That comes as a shock to most people, right? But it is. It's widely known, the name Jesus, and it's widely used. Unfortunately, many use the name in jest or as a form of profanity. Jesus of Nazareth was a real person. But what do you know about him? What do you believe about him? Was he just a good man? A compassionate teacher? An excellent example of love and humility. He was those things to be to be sure. But was that the extent of who he was? Is? If we look at the claims that Jesus made of himself, then we would see that he made himself out to be God. Is he God? If he is not then we cannot say that he was a good man because he was a liar. If he was not God, he was speaking blasphemies. And that's the the accusations the Jews actually leveled against him because they didn't believe he was God. They understood that he was making himself out to be God. And they accused him of blasphemy. We cannot say that he was a compassionate teacher. Because if if what he was saying was false, then he was trying to mislead the multitudes. There's no compassion in that. There's no truth in that. And we cannot say that he was Savior if he was not God. Because he did not accomplish anything. For anybody by dying on the cross if in fact he was not is not God if he is not God then the entire history of the Christian church is founded on lies and borrowing the words of the Apostle Paul we are to be above all mankind the most pitied for our faith accounts for nothing The Apostle Paul knew exactly who Jesus was and is and was not afraid to tell everyone. Paul starts this letter, as we have seen, by singing a hymn of praise to to God for His glorious grace and mercy. He praises God for what God has done for believing Jews and Gentiles alike in the person and work of Christ Jesus. The first half of the chapter builds to a crescendo. With the words, to the praise of His glory. 
All of these things that the apostle says God has done for you in Christ is to the praise of His glory. Two weeks ago, we looked at the reasons for what Paul writes next, his prayer for the dear saints in Ephesus. The reasons why Paul is remembering them all the time, constantly in his prayers. Last Lord's Day, we looked at the content of Paul's prayer, namely his desire that the Ephesian Christians would know God better and experiential knowledge of the triune God. He prayed that God would give them the spirit of revelation so that they would experientially know the power of the triune God more and more each day. In our passage today, our Lord willing, we will look at five statements that Paul is making about Jesus. First, Jesus is not dead but alive. He was gloriously resurrected from the dead. Second, Jesus, the Christ, ascended to heaven. He did not stay here on this earth. Third, Jesus was exalted by the Father to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. Fourth statement that Paul sets forth is that Christ is not just, has not just been exalted, but is the eternal, eternally exalted one. He will remain in His exalted position as King of kings and Lord of lords for all eternity. And fifth, Paul says that Christ is all of these things to His church. And so we're going to take a, a, a little bit here this morning to look at these great truths. It is my hope and prayer for us here today that we will be given the spirit of revelation as Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus. That we will have the spiritual eyes of our hearts opened more fully to the glorious second person of the Holy Trinity. I pray that we will grow to love Him more and that we will seek to obey Him more and that we will faithfully share Him more with everyone that we have contact with. And in all this, I pray that our glorious triune God will be rightly glorified. With that in mind, let's read this passage in Ephesians. And let's read... I'm going to start in verse 15 and read through the end of the chapter. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might? That He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, 
which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, this is your word, Father. We ask that you would pour it forth into our hearts with the power of your Holy Spirit here this morning. And Father, that you would cause us to to see and understand the glorious Christ. And that we would magnify him greatly in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. In a word that we would magnify him with our lives. And that others would see Christ in us and desire to have a saving relationship with him. Father, would you do this for the sake of your church? Would you do this to honor your son? And would you do this for your eternal glory? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the first point Paul's making in a short passage here this morning is, is that Jesus is not dead. And so we see the resurrected Christ. In, in verse 20, he's talking about the power of God now. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The foundation of our Christian faith is in the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. Not like Jairus' daughter. Not like the widow of Nain's son. Not even like Lazarus. He was raised from the dead and given a glorious resurrection body. Therefore never to die again. The Christian faith is not in a dead Savior, but in a Savior who is alive forevermore. The resurrection of Christ was, at the time of the writing of the letter to the church in Corinth, a verifiable fact. Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8 At the time of the writing of this letter, it was a verifiable incident, the resurrection. There are over 500 witnesses, that eyewitnesses, in-person eyewitnesses that witnessed the, the, the living Lord, the resurrected Christ. That far outweighs the, the, the handful of soldiers that were paid to perpetrate the lie that the disciples stole the body, right? So if you wanted to refute the claim that Jesus of Nazareth had been raised from the dead, you had a big choice of witnesses that you could go talk to. And in Jewish law, all you needed is two witnesses to say the same thing that makes it fact. And so the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is a historical fact. It has not been refuted. Now people try to refute it today, but since it was not refuted then at the writing of these things, it's it's a historic fact. It cannot be refuted. 
And Paul is, is pointing forth to the, the church in Ephesus, our Savior is risen. He was not left in the grave. Now, I know in the context, Paul is speaking about the power of God. And we'll see how all this ties in. There are a lot of important theological implications now drawn from Christ's resurrection. But for time's sake, we will mention only a few here this morning. In raising Jesus from the grave, now, I know... Christ raised himself from the grave, but the Father also raised him from the grave. We see these in Scripture. So what it's saying is the power of the triune God raised Christ from the grave. Not given one or the other the particular credit for it. It's God. Three in one. One God. And raising Jesus from the grave, God the Father put his seal of acceptance upon Christ's sacrifice. Christ died for the sins of his people. And by raising him from the grave, God the Father is saying, I accept this sacrifice. That gives great assurance to us now for the forgiveness of our sins, does it not? It wasn't that Jesus just went and died for our sins, but that God the Father accepted his sacrifice and saying, payment in full. The scriptures say, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. If the sacrifice had not been acceptable, Christ would not be sitting down at the right hand of God because he would not have a people to intercede for. Because the sacrifice would be no good. No, this is the seal of God's approval that the sacrifice was in fact accepted that's an important aspect of the resurrection of Christ to the Christian in raising Jesus from the grave God the Father validated all the claims that Jesus had made of himself of who he was of who he is Paul writes about Jesus of Nazareth this is who he's talking about When he says, who was descended from David, in the first book of Romans, he says, he was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Did you hear that? He was declared to be the Son of God in power. What power? The power of God. Not just, he was a strong man. No, no, no. By his resurrection, God is declaring that Jesus is the Son of God. That's a great thing for us to know as Christians. Now we we know that it is right to worship Christ. He accepted worship when he was here on this earth. And and it's rightly for him to receive worship. If you were here this morning, you remember... John tried to worship an angel by mistake. And what did the angel say? (laughs) Uh Uh-uh. No, no. Worship God. But never once did Jesus say, no, no, don't worship me. He accepted worship. He is God.
We are told that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In other words, that kind of takes us back to the first point I was making. The, the sacrifice was accepted. Now we are justified in Christ because He was accepted by the Father. And the seal that has been placed on that is the resurrection from the dead. So we are saved, and I know you all should know and probably do know the five solas of the Reformation, right? Sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola scriptura, soli deo gloria. You all know and love those, right? So we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Our faith, however, is not in a baby Jesus lying in a manger. Our faith is not in a 12-year-old boy astounding the priests in the temple with his knowledge. Our faith is not even in adult Jesus who is going throughout the countryside preaching the kingdom and doing miracles. Our faith is not in a, in a, in a Jesus hanging on the cross dying for us or, or a dead Jesus laying in a tomb. Our faith is in a resurrected Christ who, yes, did all those other things. I'm not discounting those. But our faith is in a resurrected Lord. A Christ that came forth in power and glory from the grave. That's who we place our faith in. I was watching, started watching a movie. Probably shouldn't have started watching it. I didn't make it very far into the movie. It was supposed to be a comedy. But they had all gathered for some kind of holiday meal, some family meal. And they were praying to the baby Jesus. And I didn't find that amusing at all. As a matter of fact, what I found was the remote. It turned it off. You know, what enters your mind when you think of Jesus of Nazareth? He did all these wonderful things. Yes, he was born of a virgin. He was, he was swaddled in, in these cloths and, and laid in a manger. He, later on when he was 12, he did astound the priests in the temple. He did do lots of wonderful miracles as an adult and, and did go about preaching the kingdom of God. And in fact, he did die on the cross for our sins, and he was buried. And all this is according to the Scriptures. But our faith, the Christian faith, is in the resurrected Christ. That's why we meet on Sundays, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. In essence, we are celebrating Christ's resurrection every Lord's Day. When we meet for worship. Paul is making this point to the Ephesian Christians. Christ is alive. Your Savior is alive. And we know He can never die. Remember Paul writing to the church in Rome says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Why? Death no longer has dominion over him for the death he died he died to sin once for all but the life he lives 
He lives to God. He beat death. He won the victory over death. He crushed death's dominion. What does that mean for the saints? What did that mean for the church in Ephesus? Who was probably persecuted for their faith. From within and from without. That means we don't have to fear death. Because for us, death is simply a temporary internment of the body. Death frees our souls from fallen flesh and takes us to be in the very presence of our Savior until that day when He will raise those bodies, but they won't be raised corruptible. They will be raised incorruptible. And we will no longer inhabit sinful flesh, but we will have glorious resurrection bodies. So it doesn't matter what people do to us. Jesus said, don't fear those who can only kill the body. Don't, be, don't worry about them. You need to fear Him who can destroy both body and soul. So the fact that Christ is alive gives us a living hope that we too one day will be raised from the grave. The Bible says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. That gives us great hope. And that's a hope Paul was imparting to the church in Ephesus. He wants the Ephesian Christians to grasp with an ever-growing clarity they are saved and secured by the power of God. The same power that was used in raising Jesus from the dead. And the faith they have is in a living Lord. But he doesn't stop there. Next, Paul speaks of the ascended Christ. He says in the last part of verse 20, And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And this is important, okay? Jesus didn't just rise from the grave, walk around on this earth for a while, and then just disappear. He was taken up to heaven in full view of his disciples. Now there's a lot of implications. We'll get to that in a little bit. There's a lot of implications on that though. Just based on that fact. We read in, in Luke's gospel. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands he blessed them. While he blessed them he parted from them. And was carried up into heaven. We are told where he was taken. He was taken up into heaven. Luke again writes in, in Acts chapter 1. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, this Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. So the fact that Jesus was raised is great news. But the fact that he just didn't stay here is even, even better news. Well, how do you say that? We wish he was still here with us, right? Wouldn't it be better if Jesus was physically here with us? Not necessarily. 
Not according to Jesus. Remember Jesus' wonderful promise? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. The implication there is he has to go and prepare and come again. Jesus in his resurrected body is not omnipresent. How could Jesus minister to you here this morning and to someone else in Africa or just down the street in a different congregation who's meeting at the same time? How how could he do that? How could he be present with all of his followers at the same time? In his resurrected body, he's not omnipresent. When he was taken from he was taken to a specific location. His resurrected body is still within time, not time necessarily, but, but within space. Okay, it occupies a space. And so he was taken to a specific location. It's not just he was taken up into the clouds and he sent some mist and spiritual, you know dwelling until until he comes and returns no he's in a physical location heaven of course this heaven will be recreated the new heavens and new earths we are told for christ has entered not into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of god on our behalf He wasn't just raised up from the dead. He was raised up from the earth and taken to heaven and given a specific job there. He wasn't just going there to hang out and wait till the Father says, okay, it's time to go back. No. We are told, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. What is Christ doing now? As our great high priest, he has offered a sacrifice to God, one sacrifice, and that sacrifice, as we've seen already, is accepted. So he's not sacrificing anymore, but he's still acting as high priest. What does the high priest do? Talks to God for man. Intercedes on behalf of man. So Christ, we call this his session now, his priestly, high priestly session. He's interceding for his people. It's good that he does that. Is it not? Isn't it more advantageous to us that he is right, seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us? Jesus said to himself that he had to leave so that the Holy Spirit could be poured out upon the church. John chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. John Calvin writes, Being raised to heaven, he withdrew his bodily presence from our sight. Not that he might cease to be with his followers, <coughs> excuse me, who are still pilgrims on earth, 
but that he might rule both heaven and earth more immediately by his power. Or rather, the promise which he made to be with us even to the end of the world, he fulfilled by this ascension, by which, as his body has been raised above all heavens, so his power and efficacy have been propagated and diffused beyond all the bounds of heaven and earth. End quote. So it's good for us that he ascended to heaven. And so Paul speaks to this church in Ephesus about <coughs> Christ's ascension. He, he didn't remain here, but he was taken up. But it's not, and see how this progresses. It doesn't just end with the ascension now. But not only was he taken up to heaven, but then he was exalted. You know, what could be higher than heaven? What could be more exalted than heaven? Well, the implication is that he was seated at the right hand of God. The right hand of God is the seat of ultimate power, ultimate honor. Paul writes in verse 21, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, when Christ Jesus ascended upon reaching heaven, he was coronated. He was crowned. That is, he was elevated to the highest position of power, rule, and authority. Now think, if you're in the church of Ephesus, who was the power and authority? Caesar, Rome. Paul is saying, no, no, no. There's a higher authority than Caesar. Christ is the highest authority. There is no power greater than his power. There is no authority that surpasses his authority. There does not exist in all creation, both in heaven and on earth, any creature that does not fall under Christ's dominion. The implications of that are what? Caesar's God's Caesar. The president is God's president. Because everybody is under Christ's dominion. Now I know they wouldn't like to hear that us saying that they're just pawns in the hands of in God's hands, but really, that's what they are. God raises up men, governments, and God puts down governments. There's no person in any position of authority that's there accidentally. Because for whatever God's purpose is, for whatever His reasons are, He's placed them there. Paul, writing of this exaltation to the Philippian church writes, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But it doesn't stop there. Paul writes, Not only in this age, but also 
and the one to come. The resurrected, living, ascended, exalted Christ will be that for all eternity. He is the eternal King of kings and Lord of lords. This Jesus of Nazareth, whom many rejected, whom many still reject today, is the exalted Christ. The eternal King. You see, God promised King David that he would forever have a descendant of his, David's, seated on the throne. Jeremiah 33, 17 says, For thus says the Lord, Yahweh, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. That was a covenant promise God made to King David. This covenant promise is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. We see that even in the promise of the angel to Mary. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Christ not only is exalted, but he is exalted eternally. And it doesn't matter how far away we get from 2,000 years ago when He was resurrected, when He ascended to heaven, when He was exalted by the Father. It doesn't matter how far we get away from that. He is still eternally exalted. Do we live our lives like that's the reality? Do we strengthen our faith by contemplating this reality? The one in whom we have placed our faith is the eternal King of Kings. His reign will never end. And the Bible tells us that we will reign with Him, which means what? We will never end. Because we will be with Him. Revelation 11.15 says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Dear ones, we are not waiting for a future kingdom. Christ is reigning right now. He is king right now. We are royalty right now. And we are currently seated with him in the heavenly places, reigning with him right now. We're not waiting for some um, future millennial, a thousand years that we're going to actually reign with him on this earth. No, no, we are reigning with Christ right now. You know how I know that? I think that's what Paul is saying when he continues this passage. You see, all those things that Paul has just put forth about Christ, that he's, he's been resurrected, that he's ascended, that he's exalted, and that he's eternal, 
He's saying all of those things, dear ones, he is to his church. And he put all things under his feet and gave him head as excuse gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We must remember that Paul is writing this letter to a church that is under fire. You know, maybe it's not so encouraging to us today as it might have been to them. They are receiving much opposition from the pagan unbelievers. We see that, the, the, the uproar and the, the opposition they're receiving from the idol makers, right? The people that are losing business because people are coming to faith in Christ and, and no longer purchasing these idols. They're being persecuted. There's a good chance that some of them had probably lost their livelihood. Someone had lost maybe even their homes. Some had even maybe lost their lives because of their faith in Christ. But they are being attacked from within as well. Because Paul's also in this letter dealing with false teachers. And so they're being attacked from without and from within. So just think of the encouragement that these words would have to them from the pen of the apostle. It doesn't matter if you lose everything here. You belong to Christ who is eternally exalted above everything. Who is alive forevermore. Who has defeated death on your behalf. And who will bring you to His physical presence one day to be with Him forever. He is the resurrected Lord to His church. It is in this context that Paul is writing to them, telling them the glorious reality of their faith, their union to Christ. They have, as believers, experienced the spiritual reality of the power of the resurrection, right? They have experienced the first resurrection in Christ. We'll see that more clearly when we hit chapter 2, when Paul deals with this spiritual resurrection. This is assuring them that no matter what happens, even if they must die, they will be resurrected. And they will be taken up with Christ. And they will reign with Christ for eternity. Christ is the supreme authority. And as the supreme authority... He will have the final say. He will have the final word. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And this to the glory of our great and glorious God the Father. 
The church then, since this is talking about the power of the triune God, the power that raised Christ from the dead, the power that took him to heaven, the power that has exalted him above all other power. This is the power of Christ, who is the head of the church. Consequently, as his body, we, in a limited sense, possess that very power and exercise that very power. How do we do this? By advancing Christ's kingdom in this earth. I mean, it's this exalted Christ, this exalted Lord, who promised that the gates of hell shall not prevail against His church. And so it is the power of Christ that we stand in and that we work in when we share the gospel. And that should give us great encouragement. Rather than, oh, I hope it works. No, no. This gospel goes forth. And if it goes forth in the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of Christ, it will work. It shall be effective. Your lost loved ones can be saved because it's the power of God that saves them. And that should encourage us to share our faith with them. As Paul is encouraging the the Ephesian Christians to be faithful, to persevere, to not be ashamed of the gospel, but to share it, regardless of what may happen to them. Because it's the power of God. It is through this same power that the church can have victory over sin, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Remember our Savior, the captain of our salvation, has overcome all these. The power of sin is broken. Death has been defeated. It is these wonderful realities that Paul is exhorting the Ephesian church to grasp and to cling to as they seek to live obedient lives that glorify their king. God has given this exalted Christ to the church. What a wonderful gift. What a wonderful gift. You know, that, you know, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's a beautiful verse. But then this, this brings it down even closer. God has given this exalted Christ to His church to be her head. Which means an intimate relationship. A head and the body must be together to function properly. What a beautiful picture. You know, we love the bride analogy that, that Paul will come to later on in this chapter, in this verse, I'm excuse me, this book of Ephesians. But here now, it's the, the head in the body. We are the body of Christ. And so, since Christ is all of those things to his church, that begs the question then what can stop her? What can thwart the advance of Christ's kingdom? What can stop the spread of the gospel? When Christ has been given to the church, and the church has been given to Christ, not just Jesus of Nazareth, but the exalted Lord. Peter writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness 
through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Second Peter 1.3 In our passage today, we have seen that by the power of God, Christ was raised from the dead, thus giving us the assurance of a future bodily resurrection. Christ was taken up to heaven where he was coronated as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, thus ensuring our future reality with him there. He was made head over all things and specifically head of his body, the church. It is by this same power that sinners are converted and by the same power that believers can live for Christ. We are assured victory as we seek to advance Christ's kingdom on this earth. If you are here today or even listening to the message on the internet and you are convicted that you do not savingly know this Jesus, this glorious King, then I plead with you to run to Him. He is the only one who can give you life. Jesus said that He came to seek and save the lost. Sinner, He is your only hope. Flee to the Savior today. Upon hearing the gospel, that Jesus died for the sins of His people, that He was buried, and three days later, He was raised to life in power and glory, and that He now reigns supreme at the right hand of God, the Bible commands a twofold response, repentance and faith. God commands you, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3, 2. That is, turn from your sinful ways. Stop trusting in your own works and merits to make you right with God. Cry out to the King of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, for mercy. God gives you a command that comes with a promise. The command is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the promise is you will be saved. That's God's promise. But you must follow the command. God is saying to you through His Word, In a favorable time I listen to you, and a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Won't you repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today? Only He can save you. Dear saints of the living God, Having heard these great truths about Christ Jesus here today, what is standing in your way for living victoriously? Think about that. What still hinders your walk with Christ? He has won the victory. What is keeping you from fulfilling your covenant promises to each other? In humble faith, repent. You see, repentance is not just for the lost. Repentance is a grace, a great grace of God that we need daily. 
flee to our King for forgiveness and strength. Not only is He mighty to save, but He will cause you to persevere in the faith by the same power of God that raised Him from the dead, carried Him up to heaven, and granted Him all authority in heaven and on earth. That is the power that you have access to to live for Christ. He is our head. We are His body. Be faithful. Resist sin. Share the gospel. It is the exalted Christ whom we serve. Look to Christ. As the title of our closing hymn says, Look ye saints. The sight is glorious. Let's pray. Holy Father, I humbly beg you today to make these glorious truths the reality that fills every heart here today and that we would indeed see Christ as the altogether lovely one that the sight would be glorious to us as we seek to do your will and spread your kingdom here on this earth empower us Father keep us faithful in Christ's name Amen If you would stand and uh, turn with me to hymn number 127.